History Reread, September 2021, on Liberty. You are very welcome to this podcast, History Reread. On the first Monday of every month, I present a commentary on a famous text from history, something familiar that many of you will have already read, while others, myself included, might feel it to be something we should have read, or must have read, but can't remember doing so. Over the other Mondays of the month, I am relating that text, audiobook style, either in full or abridged form. This month it is... On Liberty by John Stuart Mill, and the reread is prompted by the following headline and story Shall I still wear a face mask in shops and on public transport? Latest government guidance explained by Danielle Sheridan, Joe Shute, and Dominic Penner, taken from the London Daily Telegraph online on the 19th of July 2021. This article was published on the day restrictions were formally lifted in the UK following a postponement from the 21st of June. The UK government argued for the delay based on projections that 10% more people will have received a first dose of vaccine up from 79%, in addition to an increase of 19% to 76% of the fully vaccinated that will have taken place by the later date as a result of the delay there had been an increase in cases as the Delta variant was discovered to be more transmissible and data was emerging about how the interval between doses could affect levels of protection. Scientists were wary that the return of certain basic freedoms was going to act as a gateway for this variant. On July the 11th, a major international football or soccer tournament came to an end in a match at Wembley Stadium in the capital of the UK with more than 76,000 spectators in attendance. There had been 10 competition games at this venue with stricter limits on the numbers allowed into the stadium. There was no spiralling upwards of infections, hospitalizations, or deaths. However, research published in The Guardian on the 20th presented jointly by the Department of Culture and Public Health England show that over 9,000 cases can be traced to the latter stages of the tournament. The mood of the country at that time was euphoric, with England's national team having reached the final. If anyone was looking at stats then, they were the sporting ones rather than those coming out of more scientific investigation. As some scientists had predicted, cases were still rising, peaking at 46,000 on the day before the lifting of social restrictions, the 20th. They then immediately fell. There was no correlation between the drop in cases and the release from the obligation to wear masks. In fact, some restrictions remained, such as arrivals by air from red-list countries. 
UK nationals in this situation were and still are being forced to quarantine. There were inconsistencies. It fell upon the discretion of the individual, him or herself, to decide on the appropriateness of wearing a mask or not in public places. Yet Transport for London retains a policy of mask wearing on the underground buses and crosslink above ground services. The article appeared in order to clarify the situation for its readership, some of whom refused to address the data, judging by the comments that attended the article. Inconclusiveness over the individual and mutual benefits of mask wearing, as well as how the ending of restrictions on wearing them has changed public behaviour in Britain, will be looked at by way of conclusion. On Liberty, an overview. Mill offers his own in Chapter 5 of his essay. The maxims are, first, that the individual is not accountable to society for his actions, insofar as these concern the interests of no person but himself. Advice, instruction, persuasion, and avoidance by other people, if thought necessary by them for their own good, are the only measures by which society can justifiably express its dislike or disapprobation of his conduct. Secondly, that for such actions as are prejudicial to the interests of others, the individual is accountable and may be subjected either to social or legal punishment, if society is of opinion that the one or the other is requisite for its protection. We will look at the face mask question in more detail, presently based on what we understand so far about Mill's conception of liberty. Positive and negative freedoms as the necessary context. On the matter of feeling constrained to wear a mask for the sake of one's own health or to protect others, there is no conclusive evidence about the effectiveness of wearing masks either way. Whether wearing one is ever going to protect the wearer is a moot point. But since the time of Louis Pasteur, doctors have been wearing them to protect their patients. The importance of mask wearing in this case is indisputable. Wearing a mask to abide by the law based on the principle of protecting others is an example of negative freedom. Choosing to wear a mask based on a concern for the well-being of oneself and others is an example of positive freedom. If someone decides not to wear a mask, there might be valid reasons for her or him, let's say them, for the sake of politeness, if not grammatical clarity. They sometimes find it ill-fitting and a problem if they wear glasses which tend to steam up. Furthermore, they may work in a community where others rely on the ability to read their lips either partly, for example, those working in noisy industrial environments, or more intensively, as with nursing home staff who need to communicate to those of advanced years who are significantly hearing impaired. 
during the first wave of the pandemic, with cases rocketing throughout the late spring and early summer of 2020, many could say, among the generally healthy, that they knew of no one suffering from the COVID virus. At that point, the worst hit group was the elderly. Few nurses or carers could say that none of the patients had or had had the virus. The pre-existing isolation, in contrast to the liberty of the general public, was telling. Caring staff in this situation would have been better informed when it came to deciding on a policy as to mask wearing as far as protecting the vulnerable against the ravages of the worst viral pandemic since the Spanish flu. The inconveniences in nursing homes of both staff and patients wearing masks, although considerable, must have seemed worthwhile for the general good or utility as John Stuart Mill would have described it. Yet even in desperate circumstances such as these, there was no binary choice in which wearing a mask was uncomplicatedly right and not wearing one wholly wrong. Nor was there, or is there, a straightforward choice between which public institutions are to remain open and which are to be closed. No other place has the potential to spread COVID more than hospitals if the strictest of preventative measures are not taken at all times. Even the best informed Minister of Health, as part of the most competent of governments in London, when drawing up lists of places where mask wearing is to be mandatory and others in which doing so is voluntary, there was bound to be some confusion. When following the rules, there will be anomalies. Indeed, they will be expected and are in fact necessary as the data gathering that comes with a constantly changing situation as new strains of the virus emerge create challenges across different social settings, all of which lead to categorizations of situations that are fluid across categories. The Telegraph's editorial position in relation to the article. The Telegraph politically right of centre, has consistently taken the position that lockdown restrictions were an infringement of civil liberties and that it is for the individual to exercise responsibility when it comes to protecting others from the virus and not for the state to enforce measures as to public safety. The article simply lists what the measures were that no longer apply, leaving the reader to note the contradictions with the benefit of hindsight. More tendentiously, it highlights the position of local government as voiced by the mayors of England's two biggest metropolitan areas, London and Greater Manchester, where mask wearing is to remain compulsory on public transport for the sake of protecting the vulnerable, then contrasts this with examples of company policy in the private sector beyond municipal control. In particular, the rail delivery group were reported as saying that passengers would, quote, be encouraged to wear masks when stations are busy. Many rail operators have said they will expect passengers to put on masks when in a crowded carriage. 
it raises the prospect of passengers having to put on and then remove coverings throughout a journey, depending which rail service or station they are using and how busy it is. To add to the confusion, some operators have said they expect passengers to wear masks on trains regardless of how busy a service is, while others require it only if a carriage is crowded. End of quote. Surprisingly, there was nothing about the latest medical evidence as to the effectiveness of wearing masks as both a protective measure taken by the wearer and the protection of others as a result of someone using one or other form of face covering. Despite the restrained reporting, the article prompted 855 reader comments, a few going into detail about the benefits of mask wearing, some stating a positive libertarian position that it was a matter of their human right to be free of all rules regarding masks, whatever the consequences for others. There were also the usual conspiracy theories suggesting things like how Chinese pharmaceutical companies have paved the way for the introduction of their products on the international consumer markets by planning the release of the COVID into the environment to optimize sales. However, hundreds of comments dismissed the need for wearing masks in short text message type posts. The few who elaborated insisted that masks are unhygienic, confusing their efficacy with the undoubtedly unhygienic manner in which some dispose of them after use. Its relevance to Mill's conception of liberty Mill would have only recognised the exercising of liberty in the refusal of some to wear a mask if no one else was bound to suffer as a result. A die-hard elitist and scourge of politicians, he would have sided with the scientific community against the mediocrity, if not incompetence, of politicians and, even more volubly, against the fecklessness of the uneducated. Mill's philosophy was based on the concept of utilitarianism, something that had been about for over a century. The most enduring formulation of the idea was propounded by Jeremy Bentham in 1780. Quote, Nature has placed mankind under the governance of two sovereign masters, pain and pleasure. It is for them alone to point out what we ought to do. Cutting to the second clause of his principles, he then says, By the principle of utility is meant that principle which approves or disapproves of every action whatsoever according to the tendency it appears to have to augment or diminish the happiness of the party whose interest is in question, or, what is the same thing, in other words, to promote or to oppose that happiness. I say of every action whatsoever, and therefore not only of every action of a private individual, but of every measure of government. Before Mill started grappling with the concept, much had been done with it, 
involving algorithms, in particular hedonic calculus, used for measuring the degree of happiness possible between the alleviation of pain and the maximization of pleasure. Mill believed that such deliberations were pointless or even harmful without consideration of human conscience. But in making judgments about human nature, he was guilty of a number of fallacies. More of this later. If, according to Mill, a healthy person, not merely asymptomatic, but tested and found to have no infection, refuses to wear a mask but subsequently contracts the virus and dies as a result, then they hurt no one but themselves. If this is where it ends, then there are grounds for defending their exercising of civil liberty as far as this goes. Mill would have supported this position, but what if their family suffers as a result of, in Victorian terms, the loss of the breadwinner? Moreover, assuming this person does not perish in some hovel away from civilization, attempting to save the life of such an individual still poses an element of risk to the medical and nursing staff. It seems a latter-day John Stuart Mill would have had zero tolerance not only of anti-maskers, but anti-vaxxers. The refusal to accept vaccination would amount to an even more flagrant disregard of public safety as the benefits to society, the utility of vaccination. The evidence for the efficacy of the various vaccinations as protection from COVID is overwhelming despite side effects in a small percentage of cases and some doubt as to how long the protection lasts and whether longer intervals between the initial dose and a second booster dose is likely to increase protection. Those who refuse to be vaccinated play both wittingly and unwittingly a more active part in spreading infection. Despite rejecting the hedonic calculus of Jeremy Bentham, Mill was still playing a numbers game, not necessarily callous about individual human suffering, but remaining aloof over questions about the experiential nature of pain, believing that it can be aggregated out to a statistic as if the well-being of society is safeguarded not by the challenges of those who suffer the least, but by the fewest possible suffering in full measure. Now let's look in detail at Mill's essay on liberty without further delay. Mill was not interested in questions of determinism, free will, or metaphysics generally. He was concerned more with civilization and the ways societies organize themselves, and by extension, primarily, the place of the individual within society. The introduction to his essay on liberty makes this clear. Here he sets out his three main ideas in descending order of importance. 1. Freedom in the matter, quote, of the liberty of thought and discussion. 2. The freedom, quote, of individuality as one of the elements of well-being. 3. Freedom in the matter Quote, of the limits to the authority of society over the individual. 
Respectively, they are essentially the freedom of speech, the freedom to pursue tastes if they do no harm to others, even if they are considered immoral by society, and the freedom of assembly. They form the three central chapters of the essay following the introduction and before offering applications here mentioning along the way high-stakes exams, free trade, drugs, the slave trade, as well as others. The second chapter is the most important from the point of view of philosophical inquiry and the history of philosophy, as well as political science. A slight digression. When reading the comments to the Telegraph article discussed a few moments ago, I was struck not so much by the liberty of thought expressed over mask-wearing, but the refusal to abide by the measure as far as in doing so it must, to some extent, require habit-forming tendencies in people. The matter then becomes one of taste rather than moral conviction. This is the domain of chapter 3 rather than chapter 2. Some way into chapter 3, Mill asserts that, quote, Society has now fairly got the better of individuality, and the danger which threatens human nature is not the excess, but the deficiency of personal impulses and preferences. Having already mentioned the Holy Roman Empire and unspecified individuals of strong will, to use his phrase, who at that time managed to reign in the excesses of the popes, Mill continues, quote, The popes asserted a power over the whole man, claiming to control all his life in order to control his character, which society had not found any other sufficient means of binding. Mill, who was among the more forward-thinking in relation to women's rights in the middle third of the 19th century, might have mentioned that this claiming of control was more binding or oppressive for women than for men. Moreover, given that he is more interested in consequences than in human motivation or tastes, it perhaps does not matter that he fails to recognize dogma in both these spheres, but in alluding to the Holy Roman Empire, it would seem odd if we were expected to infer that Charlemagne and his successors acted, to use his words, on impulse from personal preference, in any case, the great man theory of history in relation to the Italian Renaissance is evident, as is what followed the Age of Reason, the passing of which he seems to lament when suggesting his everyday contemporaries are more interested in their position in society than in their own humanistic development. Then, in a related discussion on Calvinism, he completely neglects the humanism of the Northern Renaissance, championing the ancient Greek statesman Pericles above the Scots Calvinist thinker John Knox, in this connection an Aunt Sally. He might have mentioned instead Albrecht Dürer or Shakespeare. 
Here he introduces the fallacy that a state of original sin cripples original thinking. But the rigour with which Calvinists read and continue to read the Gospels in order to understand the nature of atonement can be equally applied to secular matters of humankind generally. We will come to chapter 4 presently. In the relatively shorter chapter 4, Mill looks at the legitimate role of governments when it comes to punishing a person for neglecting to fulfil a duty to others or causing harm to them. His position is that the consequence of neglect should be punished, but not the vice that gave rise to it in the first place. He gives, as an example, polygamy among the Mormons of the Utah Territory which did not become a U.S. state until 1896, a generation after Mill's death. He regarded with great personal distaste the practice of plural marriages on the part of the men as tyrannical and argues his point well, even in relation to figures of speech today. Quote, it is a direct infraction of that principle, liberty being a mere riveting of the chains of one half of the community and an emancipation of the other from reciprocity of obligation towards them. End of quote. However, he accepted the position that Mormons were entitled to settle their own Zion or New Jerusalem out of harm's way, harm to the United States, but in viewing them as a sect, he is guilty of the fallacy that those far away are somehow more homogeneous as a community than members of one's own immediate environment. Proportionately, an extended religious community is not going to have the same social diversity as the citizens within a nation-state, but Mill is mistaken in dismissing Mormon practices when asserting that half the women folk are ready to be one of any number of wives to the same man, while the other half are not. There is no mention of Mormons who feel their liberty is being denied by other Mormons, not just potentially wives in a certain type of marriage. Coming back to the face mask question in conclusion without any further delay. In countries such as Japan, if someone is ill, for example with the common cold, the onus is on them to protect others. If then, of necessity, they have to leave their house, it is considered appropriate that they wear a mask. Fellow citizens, in due course, as of habit, keep their distance. The mask signals the physical parameters others should observe for their own safety in a non-threatening way. The imposition of this kind of behaviour on cultures not used to it, in other words the obligation of social distancing in countries like Britain and Ireland, has led to both mask-wearing and social distancing, as well as other measures like personal hand and face sanitation, laying bare the stark reality of today being qualitatively different from the norms of yesterday. 
things we tended to take for granted as to our everyday public behaviour are now open to question. The recovery not only of people's health among those who have been affected by the virus, but of social norms, cannot simply amount to the restoration of a not-so-distant pre-Covid yesterday. This being the case, as always, there needs to be a scapegoat in order to give the resentment focus. In this case, China, a country contemptuous of freedom and civil liberties. Fear of this Asian giant has given rise to conspiracy theories about Covid as the China pandemic, as it was there that the virus apparently originated. At the risk of resorting to hyperbole, this kind of mentality goes against the grain of European Enlightenment thinking. Having made the distinction between positive and negative freedoms within the European intellectual context and discussed at length the imposition of mask-wearing, in particular by the authorities in Great Britain, the persistence of this measure as a voluntary selfless act can be seen as much as a manifestation of positive freedom as it is with those choosing not to wear masks. Here the concept of utilitarianism falls down. Continuing with a libertarian, right-leaning perspective in this instance will barely allow us to pick away further at Mill's position. There are more radical points of view. Let's take another article, this time from the Guardian newspaper, published on Friday the 20th of August, taking as its source the UK Office for National Statistics. Here it was reported that, quote, about 9 in 10 people in the UK are still wearing face coverings at least some of the time, despite them no longer being compulsory, official figures show. From a left-leaning perspective, this matter is less straightforward, if it were ever that in the first place. Those looking at the evidence and the failings of government action during the worst of the pandemic and the propaganda used to create the fear that cowers people into following restrictions would find some sympathy among utilitarian thinkers. But generally among the fair-minded, after the worst of this, whenever that may be, the blanket refusal to wear masks among the ignorant and conceited will not be nothing. I am echoing the high-minded language of Victorian intellectuals like Mill here. This would be seen as an example of delinquency demanding correction in the form of social conscience-raising interventions to use modern-day jargon. The state would go about this as a precaution against more heinous violations demanding punishment. Despite his general distrust of the state, John Stuart Mill would unequivocally be in favour of this. But wrongdoing in cases of serious crime is judged primarily on the outcome of people's actions, although motivation is taken into account as far as mitigating circumstances are concerned. 
using the same approach to discern collective happiness and then designating that happiness as a utility, as John Stuart Mill did, before looking for evidence of it in the absence of harm to others, amounts to a kind of double negative. That is, not only the absence of harm, but the lack of evidence as far as what people are actually motivated by, reducing us to the positivist assumption that what people choose to do of their own volition signals manifest personal happiness. But it is generally hard to discern, let alone second-guess personal motivation and the will towards happiness in individuals otherwise. We have discussed voluntary mask-wearing this month with the implication on my part that it has been good for society. Yet if it were even possible, it would be difficult to ascertain whether someone is wearing a mask and in doing so exercising positive freedom out of an altruistic concern for protecting others or constrained by negative freedom understood as the protection of others through the lawful curtailment of civil liberties. An extract from Chapter 3 of On Liberty by John Stuart Mill The Rights of the Individual in Society There has been a time when the element of spontaneity and individuality was in excess, and the social principle had a hard struggle with it. The difficulty then was to induce men of strong bodies or minds to pay obedience to any rules which required them to control their impulses. To overcome this difficulty, law and discipline like the popes struggling against the emperors asserted a power over the whole man, claiming to control all his life in order to control his character, which society had not found any other sufficient means of binding. But society has now fairly got the better of individuality, and the danger which threatens human nature is not the excess, but the deficiency of personal impulses and preferences. Things are vastly changed since the passions of those who were strong by station or by personal endowment were in a state of habitual rebellion against laws and ordinances and required to be rigorously chained up to enable the persons within their reach to enjoy any particle of security. In our times, from the highest class of society down to the lowest, everyone lives as under the eye of a hostile and dreaded censorship, not only in what concerns others, but in what concerns only themselves, the individual or the family. Do not ask themselves, what do I prefer, or what would suit my character and disposition, or what would allow the best and highest in me to have fair play and enable it to grow and thrive. They ask themselves what is suitable to my position, what is usually done by persons of my station and pecuniary circumstances, or, worst still, what is usually done by persons of a station and circumstances superior to mine. 
I do not mean that they choose what is customary in preference to what suits their own inclination. It does not occur to them to have any inclination except for what is customary. Thus the mind itself is bowed to the yoke. Even in what people do for pleasure, conformity is the first thing thought of. They live in crowds. They exercise choice only among things commonly done. Peculiarity of taste, eccentricity of conduct are shunned equally with crimes, until by dint of not following their own nature, they have no nature to follow. Their human capacities are withered and starved. They become incapable of any strong wishes or native pleasures and are generally without either opinions or feelings of home growth properly their own. Now is this, or is it not, the desirable condition of human nature? He then looks at this from a Protestant point of view. It is so on the Calvinistic theory. According to that, the one great offence of man is self-will. All the good of which humanity is capable is comprised in obedience. You have no choice, thus you must do, and no otherwise. Whatever is not a duty is a sin. Human nature being radically corrupt, there is no redemption for anyone until human nature is killed within him. To one holding this theory of life, crushing out any of the human faculties, capacities, and susceptibilities is no evil. Man needs no capacity but that of surrendering himself to the will of God. And if he uses any of his faculties for any other purpose but to do that supposed will, more effectually he is better without them. That is the theory of Calvinism, and it is held in a mitigated form by many who do not consider themselves Calvinists, the mitigation consisting in giving a less ascetic interpretation to the alleged will of God asserting it to be his will that mankind should gratify some of their inclinations. Of course, not in the manner they themselves prefer, but in the way of obedience that is, in a way prescribed to them by authority, and, therefore, by the necessary conditions of the case, the same for all. In such insidious form there is at present a strong tendency to this narrow theory of life and to the pitched and high-bound type of human character which it patronizes. Many persons, no doubt, sincerely think that human beings thus cramped and dwarfed are as their maker designed them to be just as many have thought that trees are a much finer thing when clipped into pollards or cut out into figures of animals than as nature made them. But if it be any part of religion to believe that man was made by a good being, it is more consistent with that faith to believe that this being gave all human faculties that they might be cultivated and unfolded, not rooted out and consumed, 
and that he takes delight in every nearer approach made by his creatures to the ideal conception embodied in them. Every increase in any of their capabilities of comprehension, of action, or of enjoyment. There is a different type of human excellence from the Calvinistic, a conception of humanity as having its nature bestowed on it for other purposes than merely to be abnegated. Pagan self-assertion is one of the elements of human worth, as well as Christian self-denial. There is a Greek ideal of self-development which the Platonic and Christian ideal of self-government blends with, but does not supersede. It may be better to be a John Knox than an Alcibiades, but it is better to be a Pericles than either. Nor would a Pericles, if we had one in these days, be without anything good which belonged to John Knox. It is not by wearing down into uniformity all that is individual in themselves, but by cultivating it and calling it forth within the limits imposed by the rights and interests of others that human beings become a noble and beautiful object of contemplation. And as the works partake the character of those who do them, by the same process human life also becomes rich, diversified, and animating, furnishing more abundant aliment to high thoughts and elevating feelings, and strengthening the tie which binds every individual to the race by making the race infinitely better worth belonging to. In proportion to the development of his individuality, each person becomes more valuable to himself and is therefore capable of being more valuable to others. There is a greater fullness of life about his own existence, and when there is more life in the units, there is more in the mass which is composed of them. As much compression as is necessary to prevent the stronger specimens of human nature from encroaching on the rights of others cannot be dispensed with. But for this there is ample compensation even in the point of view of human development. The means of development which the individual loses by being prevented from gratifying his inclinations to the injury of others are chiefly obtained at the expense of the development of other people, and even to himself there is a full equivalent in the better development of the social part of his nature, rendered possible by the restraint put upon the selfish part. To be held to rigid rules of justice for the sake of others develops the feelings and capacities which have the good of others for their object, but to be restrained in things not affecting their good by their mere displeasure develops nothing valuable except such force of character as may unfold itself in resisting the restraint. If acquiesced in, it dulls and blunts the whole nature. To give any fair play to the nature of each, it is essential that different persons should be allowed to lead different lives. 
in proportion as this latitude has been exercised in any age, has that age been noteworthy to posterity. Even despotism does not produce its worst effects so long as individuality exists under it, and whatever crushes individuality is despotism, by whatever name it may be called, and whether it professes to be enforcing the will of God or the injunctions of men. Having said that individuality is the same thing with development and that it is only the cultivation of individuality which produces or can produce well-developed human beings, I might here close the argument. For what more or better can be said of any condition of human affairs that it brings human beings themselves nearer to the best thing they can be? Or, what worse can be said of any obstruction to good than that it prevents this? Doubtless, however, these considerations will not suffice to convince those who most need convincing. And it is necessary further to show that these developed human beings are of some use to the undeveloped, to point out to those who do not desire liberty and would not avail themselves of it, that they may be in some intelligible manner rewarded for allowing other people to make use of it without hindrance. A further extract from chapter 3. I insist thus emphatically on the importance of genius and the necessity of allowing it to unfold itself freely both in thought and in practice, being well aware that no one will deny the position in theory, but knowing also that almost everyone in reality is totally indifferent to it. People think genius is a fine thing if it enables a man to write an exciting poem or paint a picture, but in its true sense, that of originality in thought and action, though no one says that it is not a thing to be admired, nearly all at heart think that they can do well without it. Unhappily, this is too natural to be wondered at. Originality is the one thing which unoriginal minds cannot feel the use of. They cannot see what it is to do for them. How should they? If they could not see what it would do for them, it would not be originality. The first service which originality has to render them is that of opening their eyes, which, being once fully done, they would have a chance of being themselves original. Meanwhile, recollecting that nothing was ever yet done which someone was not the first to do, and that all good things which exist are the fruits of originality, let them be modest enough to believe that there is something still left for it to accomplish, and assure themselves that they are more in need of originality the less they are conscious of the want. 
in sober truth, whatever homage may be professed or even paid to real or supposed mental superiority, the general tendency of things throughout the world is to render mediocrity the ascendant power among mankind. In ancient history, in the Middle Ages, and in a diminishing degree through the long transition from feudality to the present time, the individual was a power in himself, and if he had either great talents or a high social position, he was a considerable power. At present, individuals are lost in the crowd. In politics, it is almost a triviality to say that public opinion now rules the world. The only power deserving the name is that of masses, and of governments while they make themselves the organ of the tendencies and instincts of masses. This is as true in the moral and social relations of private life as in public transactions. Those whose opinions go by the name of public opinion are not always the same sort of public. In America, they are the whole white population. In England, chiefly the middle class. But they are always a mass, that is to say, collective mediocrity. And what is a still greater novelty, the mass do not now take their opinions from dignitaries in church or state, from ostensible leaders, or from books. Their thinking is done for them by men much like themselves, addressing them or speaking in their name on the spur of the moment through the newspapers. I am not complaining of all this. I do not assert that everything better is compatible as a general rule with the present low state of the human mind. But that does not hinder the government of mediocrity from being mediocre government. No government by a democracy or a numerous aristocracy, either in its political acts or in the opinions, qualities and tone of mind which it fosters, ever did or could rise above mediocrity, except in so far as the sovereign many have let themselves be guided which in their best times they have always done, but by the counsels and influence of a more highly gifted and instructed one or few. The initiation of all wise or noble things comes and must come from individuals, generally at first from some one individual. The honour and glory of the average man is that he is capable of following that initiative that he can respond internally to wise and noble things, and be led to them with his eyes open. I am not countenancing the sort of hero-worship which applauds the strong man of genius for forcibly seizing on the government of the world and making it do his bidding in spite of itself, all he can claim is freedom to point out the way. The power of compelling others into it is not only inconsistent with the freedom and development of all the rest, but corrupting to the strong man himself. 
It does seem, however, that when the opinions of masses of merely average men are everywhere become or becoming the dominant power, the counterpoise and corrective to that tendency would be the more and more pronounced individuality of those who stand on the higher eminences of thought. It is, in these circumstances, most especially exceptional individuals, instead of being deterred, should be encouraged in acting differently from the mass. In other times, there was no advantage in doing so, unless they acted not only differently, but better. In this age, the mere example of non-conformity, the mere refusal to bend the knee to custom, is itself a service, precisely because the tyranny of opinion is such as to make eccentricity a reproach. It is desirable, in order to break through that tyranny, that people should be eccentric. Eccentricity has always abounded when and where strength of character has abounded, and the amount of eccentricity in a society has generally been proportional to the amount of genius, mental vigour, and moral courage which it contained. That so few now dare to be eccentric marks the chief danger of the time. I have said that it is important to give the freest scope possible to uncustomary things in order that it may in time appear which of these are fit to be converted into customs. But independence of action and disregard of custom are not solely deserving of encouragement for the chance they afford that better modes of action and customs more worthy of general adoption may be struck out. Nor is it only persons of decided mental superiority who have a just claim to carry on their lives in their own way. There is no reason that all human existences should be constructed on some one or some smaller number of patterns. If a person possesses any tolerable amount of common sense and experience, his own mode of laying out his existence is the best, not because it is the best in itself, but because it is his own mode. Human beings are not like sheep, and even sheep are not undistinguishably alike. A man cannot get a coat or a pair of boots to fit him unless they are either made to his measure or he has a whole warehouse full to choose from, and it is easier to fit him with a life more than with a coat or are human beings more like one another in their whole physical and spiritual conformation than in the shape of their feet? If it were only that people have diversities of taste, that is reason enough for not attempting to shape them all after one model. But different persons also require different conditions for their spiritual development, and can no more exist healthily in the same moral than all the variety of plants can in the same physical atmosphere and climate.
the same things which are helps to one person towards the cultivation of his higher nature are hindrances to another. The same mode of life is a healthy excitement to one, keeping all his faculties of action and enjoyment in their best order, while to another it is a distracting burden, which suspends or crushes all internal life. Such are the differences among human beings in their sources of pleasure, their susceptibilities of pain, and the operation on them of different physical and moral agencies, that unless there is a corresponding diversity in their modes of life, they neither obtain their fair share of happiness, nor grow up to the mental, moral, and aesthetic stature of which their nature is capable. Why then should tolerance as far as the public sentiment is concerned, extend only to tastes and modes of life which exhort acquaintance by the multitude of their adherents. Nowhere, except in some monastic institutions, is diversity of taste entirely unrecognized. A person may, without blame, either like or dislike rowing, or smoking, or music, or athletic exercises, or chess, or cards, or study, because both those who like each of these things and those who dislike them are too numerous to be put down, but the man, and still more the woman, who can be accused either of doing what nobody does, or of not doing what everybody does, is the subject of as much deprecatory remark as if he or she had committed some grave moral delinquency. Persons require to possess a title, some other badge of rank, or of the consideration of people of rank, to be able to indulge somewhat in the luxury of doing as they like without detriment to their estimation. To indulge somewhat, I repeat, for whoever allow themselves much of that indulgence incur the risk of something worse than disparaging speeches. They are in peril of a commission de lunatico, and of having their property taken from them and given to their relations. An extract from chapter 4. The Obligations of the Individual to Society Though society is not founded on a contract, and though no good purpose is answered by inventing a contract in order to deduce social obligations from it, everyone who receives the protection of society owes a return for the benefit, and the fact of living in society renders it indispensable that each should be bound to observe a certain line of conduct towards the rest. This conduct consists first in not injuring the interests of one another, or rather certain interests which, either by express legal provision or by tacit understanding, ought to be considered as rights, and secondly, in each person's bearing his share, to be fixed on some equitable principle of the labours and sacrifices incurred for defending the society or its members from injury and molestation. 
these conditions society is justified in enforcing at all costs to those who endeavour to withhold fulfilment. Nor is this all that society may do. The acts of an individual may be hurtful to others, or wanting in due consideration for their welfare without going the length of violating any of their constituted rights. The offender may then be justly punished by opinion, though not by law. As soon as any part of a person's conduct affects prejudicially the interests of others, society has jurisdiction over it, and the question whether the general welfare will or will not be promoted by interfering with it becomes open to discussion. But there is no room for entertaining any such question when a person's conduct affects the interests of no persons beside himself, or needs not affect them unless they, like all the persons concerned, being of full age and the ordinary amount of understanding. In all such cases, there should be perfect freedom, legal and social, to do the action and stand the consequences. He then gives examples pertinent to his own society, and later goes on to talk about other societies. I cannot refrain from adding to these examples, which I've redacted, these examples of the little account commonly made of human liberty, the language of downright persecution, which breaks out from the press of this country whenever it feels called on to notice the remarkable phenomenon of Mormonism. Much might be said of the unexpected and instructive fact that an alleged new revelation and a religion founded on it the product of palpable imposture, not even supported by the prestige of extraordinary qualities in its founder, is believed by hundreds of thousands and has been made the foundation of a society in the age of newspapers, railways and the electric telegraph. What here concerns us is that this religion, like other and better religions, has its martyrs, that its prophet and founder was, for his teaching, put to death by a mob, that others of its adherents lost their lives by the same lawless violence, that they were forcibly expelled in a body from the country in which they first grew up, while, now that they have been chased into a solitary recess in the midst of a desert, many in this country openly declare that it would be right, only that it is not convenient, to send an expedition against them, and compel them by force to conform to the opinions of other people. The article of the Mormonite doctrine, which is the chief provocative to the antipathy which thus breaks through the ordinary restraints of religious tolerance, is its sanction of polygamy, which, though permitted by Mohammedans and Hindus, 
and Chinese seems to excite unquenchable animosity when practiced by persons who speak English and profess to be a kind of Christians. No one has a deeper disapprobation than I have of this Mormon institution, both for other reasons and because, far from being in any way countenanced by the principle of liberty, it is a direct infraction of that principle, being a mere riveting of the chains of one half of the community and an emancipation of the other from reciprocity of obligation towards them. Still, it must be remembered that this relation is as much voluntary on the part of the women concerned in it, and who may be deemed the sufferers by it, as is the case with any other form of marriage institution. And however surprising this fact may appear, it has its explanation in the common ideas and customs of the world, which teaching women to think marriage the one thing needful, make it intelligible that many a woman should prefer being one of several wives to not being a wife at all. Other countries are not asked to recognize such unions or release any portion of their inhabitants from their own laws on the score of Mormonite opinions. But when the dissentients have conceded to the hostile sentiments of others, far more than could justly be demanded, when they have left the countries to which their doctrines were unacceptable and established themselves in a remote corner of the earth, which they have been the first to render habitable to human beings, it is difficult to see on what principles but those of tyranny they can be prevented from living there under what laws they please, provided they commit no aggression on other nations and allow perfect freedom of departure to those who are dissatisfied with their ways.